It's one of the first things we teach our children. We want our kids to share. We don't like it when they take their toys and they go off and play by themselves and don't let other children play with the toys they're playing with. We, we want them from a very early age to learn to share. It's, it's vital. It's an important lesson to learn. Well, I would submit to you this morning that it is just as vital, even more vital, that the church of Jesus Christ learns to share. It's important that we learn to share the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. God doesn't want us to take that message and just get together in our little groups and enjoy it among ourselves. He intends for us to take that transforming message and share it with others. And I believe the reason that we don't share that message more than we do, or the reason we struggle to share that message, is not because we lack resources, and it's not because we lack knowledge. It really boils down to this reality. We don't care enough to share. We don't care enough to share. We're going to be challenged at that point in our lives this morning as we look in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're going to begin reading in verse 16. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. So open your Bibles there with me as we continue our study through this wonderful New Testament book. Acts 17, verse 16. 16, I'll ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Thank you, Travis, for that song, Where Would We Be Without the Cross? Amen? Where would we be? And just let me just say this, uh, Travis, it's good to have you and Nikki here. Man, we're so glad you're here. Excited about that. Acts chapter 17, verse 16, the Bible says, Now while Paul was waiting for them, for who? Paul and Silas. We'll talk about that in a moment. At Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Let's pray together today. Father, we pause to give you glory. In this place, you are the reason that we're here. Lord, you are the center of attention. You are the God of our righteousness. You are a mighty God. And you are a God who, when your people draw near to you, you draw near to them. And so, Lord, we, we are grateful that you are near. We ask for you to 
to move in our lives in a mighty way by your word, applied to our life by your spirit. Would you just have your way in our midst? May we leave today knowing that we have met with the living God. And may the name of Jesus, the name above every name, be lifted up and exalted in this place. Because it's all about Jesus. And we'll thank you and praise you for that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. In this passage of Acts, we are following Paul and his team on what scholars call his second missionary journey. We have studied uh, past chapters that, uh, that told us that he traveled from his home church of Antioch through Asia into Macedonia. And in Macedonia, he went to the city of Philippi, then he went to Thessalonica, and then Berea. In Berea, Paul had some success preaching the gospel. The noble Jews there were testing what he was saying by the word, and many were believing. But some Jews from Thessalonica, who had run him out of Thessalonica, came to Berea. And because his life was in danger, uh, his companions insisted that Paul leave Berea. And the plan was... Paul and, I'm sorry, Silas and Timothy would stay behind in Berea and finish up some of the ministry there, get Paul to safety in Athens, and they would meet up again together. And so Paul was escorted to Athens where he planned to wait for Silas and Timothy to rejoin him. Look what it says there in verse 15. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. And then they departed. So in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them, waiting for for Timothy and Silas to rejoin him, they could continue on their missionary journey. And so Paul is in Athens just waiting. He's waiting for his team to get back together. Now, a quick word about Athens. Athens was an interesting city. In the first century, it was no longer the leading city in Greece in terms of politics and commerce. Corinth was at this time the leading city in Greece. And so the glory days of Athens had waned. As a matter of fact, some scholars believe there were only about 5,000 people in the city of Athens at this time. And while it was no longer a center for uh, commerce and trade, it was still a very uh, important city in the Greek culture. It was considered the intellectual center of the Roman Empire. Uh, Athens boasted of buildings like the Parthenon and numerous temples and other great buildings. And through the years in Athens, uh, intellectual luminaries like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus lived there. Athens had lost her, her commercial and political influence, but the buildings and the works of art and the intellectual climate represented the highest levels of culture in the eyes of the Greeks. And so Paul is in Athens just waiting for his team to rejoin him. And something begins to happen in Paul's heart in this city. And as we see what happens in Paul's life, it really causes us to to ask two vital questions. And and these are questions that are, are based upon the text that we need to ask ourselves. Two vital questions. You can follow along with me there in your notes as we pose these questions to one another. Here's the first question. Do you care about God's glory? Do you care about God's glory? It's vital that we care about the glory of God. Now look what happens in verse 16. The Bible says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was 
provoked. Everyone see that word provoked? That's a really interesting word in the Greek language. Uh, it, it carries with it the idea of anger or irritation. And, and it's an imperfect tense verb, which, which means in this context that this was not a sudden loss of temper, that he doesn't just kind of fly off the handle with anger. It's a word for a settled reaction to what Paul saw. So as Paul is there in Athens, it's just a, a place to pass through. He's waiting for his team to rejoin him. There's no scheduled ministry there. But as Paul is in Athens, he begins to look around at the city and, and he begins to feel within him this settled reaction of provocation of anger in his heart and in his life. Now, here's the question. Why was his spirit provoked? Why was he angry? Why was he irritated? Well, it tells us there right in the text. Look what it says in verse 16. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. The reason that he was angry and irritated and provoked is because of the idolatry that he saw taking place in the city of Athens. Or let me put it another way. Paul's spirit was provoked because of his concern for the glory of God. Instead of worshiping the one true God and giving him the glory that he alone deserves, the people were worshiping false gods. They were involved in idolatry. And as Paul saw this great injustice, his spirit is provoked within him. So he saw the city was full of idols. Now that phrase, full of idols, is another interesting Greek word. It's a compound word that takes a preposition, kata, and adds it to the word for idol worship. And the word kata could mean something like down from, to to go from a higher plane to a lower plane. And based upon that idea of the word kata, John Stott believes this word means that Athens was a city that was submerged in idolatry. It was covered up with idols. Everywhere you looked, there were idols. And of course, history attests to this reality. Ancient descriptions of Athens testify to the fact that the marketplace was lined with idols. A first century Roman Satirist named Petronius joked that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. It was full of idols, submerged in idols. And so Paul's here, a representative of the one true God that he came to know through Jesus Christ. And he sees these people worshiping all these other false gods. And it causes something to be stirred up in Paul's life. You see, Paul cared about the glory of God. He did not believe these idols deserved the worship that should be set aside for the one true God. Now, now why is Paul so distressed by idolatry? What's the big deal? I mean, they want to worship idols. Let them worship idols, right? What's the big deal about idolatry? Why is it such an, an important reality in Paul's life. Well, let me give you three things about idolatry, the reason it's so sad. Number one, idolatry is misplaced worship. Again, if you're worshiping an idol, if you're worshiping something or someone other than the one true God, then the worship that only God deserves is being given to another, and that's a serious offense, right? Misplaced worship. Listen to what God says over in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. 
I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God demands that he get all of the glory. And you say, wait, what's the deal? Is is God just on an ego trip? That he demands all of the glory and, and he's so provoked by idols and and his followers like Paul are so provoked by idols. I mean, why is God so concerned that he get all the glory? Because listen to me, God is the only one in the universe who deserves glory because he is perfect. He is without blemish. He is without sin. He is a God of holiness and majesty and beauty and sovereignty and grace and kindness. He is good and he deserves glory. No one else can make the claims that God makes. The claim of perfection, the claim of absolute moral purity, the claim of sovereign control over the universe, the claim of having all knowledge and all power. Only God possesses those attributes. And so only God deserves that worship. And so listen to me. It is the right thing to do for God to demand all the glory. If God didn't have a problem with others getting glory, then he wouldn't be doing the right thing, which would mean he's no longer holy. It is right that God gets all of the glory and praise. So the first problem with idolatry is this misplaced worship. And Paul is in Athens and he sees these people giving worship to idols. Here's another reason that idolatry is so distressing. It's vain. Idolatry is vain. Listen to Isaiah 40 verses 18 through 20. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. How vain is that? That people fasten idols with their own hands and then worship that thing that they have made. I've been in places in the world. I've been to these pagan temples and, and I've seen people off to the side actually crafting these idols. And when they finish crafting the idol, they'll take it into the temple and they'll go before that man-made object and worship. And it's so vain that they're worshiping something that they made with their hands. Listen to me. God made us. We didn't make him. And because he made us, he deserves the worship. And to give your worship to an idol is vain. And and you say, wait, I'm off the hook there. I don't go to any pagan temples. I don't do that kind of thing. Listen to me. Anything that captures your heart or your mind, anything that is higher on your priority list than the one true God is an idol in your life. So don't think that idol worship is just for the Athenians in the first century. Or for someone in another nation worshiping at a temple, listen to me, idolatry is when anything or anyone takes the place of God in your life. Money can be an idol. Success can become an idol. Appearance can become an idol. Relationships can become an idol. Prominence can become an idol. Political parties can become an idol. Come on. Right? And so we've got to make sure 
that number one in our lives is the one true God who we've come to know through the Lord Jesus Christ who has revealed himself in the word and to worship anything else, to give anyone or anything else your, your attention, your worship, your allegiance is vanity. Paul sees this vanity taking place in Athens and his heart is stirred up within him. Here's a third reason that idolatry is so distressing. It's misplaced worship and it's vain. But third, it's hopeless. It's hopeless. Over in 1 Kings 18, Elijah, the prophet of God, arranges for a showdown with the 400 plus prophets of Baal who were leading the people of Israel to false worship, to worship the idol of Baal. And so they gather on Mount Carmel, and they have this showdown. And here's the, here's the showdown. Very simply put, Isaiah says, we'll both pray to our God, and the one who's God will answer by fire. And he lets the, the priests of Baal go first. He says, pray to your God and see if your God will answer you. And so the priests of Baal began to go through their rituals and their prayers and their ceremonies, begging for Baal to hear them and to answer. But listen to what the Bible says about Baal's response in 1 Kings 18.29. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. Listen. But there was no voice. No one answered. Listen. No one paid attention. And that is the hopelessness of idolatry. People think they are crying out to God, to deity, to divinity. And really, no one's listening. No one will ever answer their prayers. No one's paying attention to them. And that is hopeless. Idols can't save, right? They're false. And our world, our culture is filled with folks being led astray by idolatry. And it all is so hopeless. I was traveling in southern India and I was in a city called Madurai. And we went to a very large, well-known Hindu temple. And we were walking through the Hindu temple. I was with uh, Trey, who's now in uh, South Asia with his family. And I'll I'll never forget, we walked in a room and there was this large um, gold object that people were coming to bring sacrifices before and to worship before. And I'll never forget, this this father walked in before this gold object and he had a little boy in his arms. And the little boy was lame. You could tell that he had a problem with his legs. And, and this father comes before this gold object and he lays, he lays his son down before that idol. And then he gets on his face. And it's, it's really, really apparent he's asking that idol to heal his son. And all I can tell you is that in my life and in Trey's life at that moment, what happened in Paul's life in Athens happened in our life. It just stirred up our spirits because we knew how hopeless that was for that man and that boy. Putting his hope and trust in an idol who is not alive instead of a God who lives. 
And so we see here the problem with idolatry. It's, it's misplaced worship. It's vain. It's hopeless. And, and, and Paul sees this and his spirit is stirred within him. Listen to what John Stott says. The pain or anger which Paul felt in Athens was due to his abhorrence of idolatry, which aroused within him deep stirrings of jealousy for the name of God as he saw human beings so depraved as to be giving idols the honor and glory which were due to the one living and true God. So what do we learn from this? If we want to be like Paul, that makes a difference with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we, if, we want to, if we want to share that message that has changed our lives, we've got to care. And we've got to care about the glory of God. Because listen to me, the glory of God is sufficient and compelling motivation for us all. If you will take your eyes off of your life and yourself and your little corner of existence and you will place them on the one true God and you will say, God, it's all about you. You deserve glory. You deserve honor. You deserve praise. I want to see you become more famous. If that becomes your mindset, then you will not be able to keep the message to yourself. You will want to share it with others so that people who are hopeless and living in vanity and and giving to an idol misplaced worship will take that worship and Come to know Christ and give it to the one true God, the only one who deserves it. So you and I need to make sure that our motivation is concern for the glory of God. That we care about His glory. And listen, when that becomes your focus, you begin to live for something bigger than yourself. It's not about you anymore. It's about him. It's about his renown. It's about his fame. It's about his greatness. It's about his glory. And you want him to get all the glory. And that is a compelling and a lasting, sufficient motivation for us all. So here's the first question. If you're going to share, do you care about God's glory? It's a fair question, isn't it? If you found yourself in Paul's shoes in Athens in the first century, if you were looking around, would your spirit be provoked within you? Would it bother you that all these people are led astray by idols? Now here's the second question we need to ask as we think about sharing that message. Do you believe in the power of God's gospel? Do you believe in the power of God's gospel? Sometimes I believe we are reticent to share the message that has changed our lives because maybe we don't have sufficient confidence that this message really does change lives. And Paul had that confidence. Now look what happens in, uh, back in chapter 17, verse 17. We're back at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Verse 17, so, there's a little uh, particle construction in the Greek language, which means this next sentence is based upon what was just said. 
So because he saw the city full of idols, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. In other words, because he saw the idolatry of Athens, because his spirit was stirred within him as he saw that misplaced worship, he was moved to action. His, listen to me, his passion for the glory of God stirred him to share the message that we call the gospel of God. And so his sharing is a direct result of his desire that God get glory. Because the spirit had been stirred for God's glory. This is in your notes. Paul could not sit idly by. Paul could not sit idly by. And isn't that how a lot of us live our lives? We've come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior. We've been saved by His grace, for His glory. We have a personal relationship with God. Our sins have been washed away. We know that we're going to heaven when we die. God is changing us from the inside out. We're experiencing all of the the benefits of being saved. I mean, we know Christ. We have a relationship with God. It's so wonderful. And yet, as we see a rapidly deteriorating culture, we're just sitting idly by. We've got the message that can make a difference. And by and large, the church is sitting idly by. We talk about church planting and, and, and we, we plant churches. We're going to plant some more churches coming up soon. And we're, we're, we're involved in, in church planting. We're supporting church plants. We're starting new churches. But listen to me. Did you know a lot of churches are closing their door every week? Did you know that when you look at the, the generations, every successive generation, the percentage of those who believe in Christ goes down? So the younger folks get, the less place their faith in Christ. We are losing our kids. And we're sitting idly by. But Paul is so concerned for the glory of God that he's got to take action. When he sees what happens, he stands up and goes start talking to folks because he knows he has a message that changes lives. So notice who he engaged. First of all, he engaged the religious. Look what it says in verse 17. It says, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. And so he knew he had some commonality with the the folks in the synagogue because they had the Old Testament as their scriptures. And, And of course, Paul had his Old Testament that he knew pointed to Jesus Christ. So he would go in the synagogue and say, hey, we're both talking about the Bible here. Let me show you how the Bible points to Jesus. And he would use his 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 presentation of the Old Testament scriptures to talk about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He did it in every city that he came to that had a synagogue. So it goes to people that are, that are religious, that you know, have some sort of background from which he can talk to them about God's word and the God of Israel and the God who has sent his son, Jesus Christ. He goes to the religious. And we live in the Bible Belt. Most people, now this is changing, it's changing rapidly, but I would say most people, most adults, have some sort of rudimentary knowledge about the Bible or about the church or about Jesus Christ. Maybe it's because they had a family member that 
took them to church when they were growing up, or they were involved in youth activities in a church growing up, or maybe it's just because of the proliferation of, of you know, Christian radio or Christian bookstores or a book someone put in their hands or whatever the case may be. But in our culture today, even though, even though there are people that are far from God, they are lost in their sins, they have some sort of rudimentary knowledge about the things of God. And listen to me. We need to engage him with the gospel. You need to say, listen, let me, let me share with you some things. Maybe you've already heard these before, but you've got to personally respond to what you've heard. Now, listen to me. This, this is what the Bible Belt needs to hear. Just knowing about Jesus doesn't save you. If you can articulate the story of the cross and the resurrection, that doesn't save you. Being a church member doesn't save you. Going through a confirmation class doesn't save you. Going under the baptismal waters, we'll do that in the next service. Got about 20 folks to baptize today. Going under baptismal waters doesn't save you. It's a step of obedience that comes after you're born again. But to be saved, to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. Being a Presbyterian or a Baptist, or what, it doesn't save you. You must personally respond to what Christ has done for you. And so we need to say to a Bible Belt culture, Maybe you've heard some of this stuff before. Maybe you're familiar with these things, but you must be born again. And that's what Paul was doing. He was talking to the religious, but also he was talking just the ordinary folks of the day. Look what it says in verse 17, the ordinary. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. They're probably speaking of of God-fears. These are people in the synagogues that were not Jewish by ethnicity, but they had uh, come to... A grasp Judaism as their religion and seeking to find the one true God, the devout persons. And it says he was in the marketplace every day. He was just going out into the marketplace, just rubbing shoulders with just plain old ordinary folks. Different backgrounds, maybe folks that grew up in Athens or folks that have moved to Athens. People just passing through, but just plain ordinary folks. And he's, he's there and he's, he's just talking to them about Jesus. We need to make sure that as we're out there rubbing shoulders with folks in our workplace and families and neighborhoods and extracurricular activities that we are seeking to be a witness for Christ. Third, he he engaged the Epicureans. Look in verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, who in the world were the Epicureans? Well, R. Kent Hughes writes, the Epicureans were were philosophers. They, they had taken hold of a certain philosophy, and they believed that any, everything that happens by, uh, everything happens by chance, and they believe that death is the end. There's no afterlife. So they believe you just die and that's it. You're extinct after that. They believe that there are no gods, or that some believe that there were, were gods, but they were distant. They were separate from creation. And, and they, were, they were just practical agnostics that, hey, we don't really know what's going on when, when it comes to deity, and so we're just not going to try to figure all that out. But these Epicureans believed, here's the way you deal with life. They believed that pleasure was the chief end of man, and that a simple lifestyle was the most pleasurable. You could sum up the Epicureans like this. Their philosophy was, enjoy life. How do you deal with life? It's hard, it's difficult. It's grueling. It's puzzling. How do you deal with it? Well, just enjoy it the best you can. 
Because you die and that's it, so you might as well live it up while you're on this earth. That's the Epicureans. Enjoy life. You say, well, I'm glad the Epicureans aren't around anymore. (laughs) Everywhere you look, you see the Epicurean philosophy. We see remnants of Epicurean thinking in our pleasure-obsessed culture, don't we? Hey, life is short. Play hard. Remember those t-shirts? So just live it up. Just do, just, just pursue your own personal pleasure because that's what life is all about. But he engaged the Epicureans. He also engaged the Stoic philosophers. Verse 19, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. The, the Stoics were a lot different. They were pantheists. They believed that, that God was in everything, kind of new agey, that God was in everything. Um, and they believed that whatever happened to them was their destiny. And so because of that, they believed their life was just firmly fixed. And because of that... They lived with apathy and detachment, sort of a fatalistic resignation. Warren Wiersbe says, Their emphasis was on personal discipline and self-control. Pleasure was not good and pain was not evil. The most important thing in life was to follow one's reason and be self-sufficient, unmoved by inner feelings or outward circumstances. Of course, such a philosophy only fanned the flames of pride and taught men that they did not need the help of God. So over here you had the Epicureans in Athens enjoy life. It's short, it's hard, enjoy life. Over here, you had the Stoics, life is hard, endure life. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps, find your inner strength and resolve and just get through it. Endure life. And if you can endure life better than the other guy, you're stronger than that other guy. That's what the Stoics said. We see remnants of Stoic thinking in modern self-help ideology. You can go to a bookstore, Books A Million or Barnes and Nobles or somewhere like that. Go to the Amazon.com and, and you can go to those bookstores and you can find book after book after book which promises some secret, some insight that will help you to be stronger and be a better person and to handle life on your own. Stoics. So, so Paul's talking to the Epicureans that are saying... Enjoy life. And he's talking to the Stoics to say, endure life. And Paul's saying, listen, I have for you real life. As he shared the message of Jesus Christ. And so notice who he engaged, these four different groups. But notice how he engaged very quickly. Notice how he engaged them. Look what it says in verse 18. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching, listen, Jesus and the resurrection. Isn't that interesting? He had a very very focused message. He was preaching not self-help. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Paul shared the good news of the finished work of Jesus Christ. He went into this, this city that was submerged in idols And he talked to to religious Jews that had the Old Testament. He talked to Epicureans and Stoics and just ordinary folks. He said, listen to me. Jesus has done something for you. The one true God has sent his only son. And he left the splendor and glory of heaven. And he came to earth, born of the Virgin Mary, fully God and fully man. And he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. And of his own volition, he went to the cross and he took 
all of our sins on himself and on the cross. The wrath of God that we deserve because we've sinned was poured out upon him. Where would we be without the cross? He took our punishment for us. And he died on that cross. And he was buried. And early on the third day, he defeated death itself. He rose from the grave. And so Paul is going into Athens full of idols. And he's engaging them with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus and his resurrection. Notice, there doesn't seem to be a different message for different groups. He goes into Athens, no matter who he's talking to. Jews, Epicureans, Stoics, just plain folks in the marketplace. He's sharing with them Jesus and the resurrection. By proclaiming Christ in these different contexts, Paul demonstrates a willingness to confront any worldview with the true gospel. Which leads us to this reality. And this gets back to whether or not we care. You ready? Everyone everywhere needs to hear the gospel. If anyone is going to be saved, if anyone is going to have their sins washed away and be reconciled to God, if anyone is going to go to heaven when they die, if anyone is going to experience the abundant life that only a spirit-filled person can enjoy, they must hear the good news. They've got to hear about Jesus and his sacrificial death and his bodily resurrection. They've got to learn what Jesus did for them. And then when they see their need for a Savior, when they see that their sins have separated them from God, they've got to embrace Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, placing their trust and faith in his work, not their own. That's why the Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We're giving our lives to him. He's our only hope. He died. He rose again. He's our only hope. So we want him to have our lives. We want to follow him. We trust him. We believe in him, right? And so everyone everywhere needs to hear the gospel. And so the question really is quite simple. Do you care about God's glory? Do you want to see him get more worship? There's a well-known quote in the book, Let the Nations Be Glad, by John Piper. He says that missions exist because worship doesn't. The reason we go out with the gospel is because there are people giving their worship to false gods. And they need to hear about the one true God through Jesus Christ so they can give him the worship that he alone deserves. Amen? Do you care about the glory of God? Listen, do you want God to get more glory in your community? Do do you want God to get more glory in your state? Do you want to see Jesus exalted in Mississippi? Do you want to see Jesus Christ lifted up in your nation? Do you want to see people that are in unreached people groups that have never even heard the name of Jesus come to know him as they hear the gospel and respond in repentance and faith? Do you care about the glory of God? Do you care? The second question is, do you care about those that have never heard the gospel? Because everyone everywhere 
needs to hear the gospel to be saved. And so here's the point. I'm going to wrap it up with this. We're going to close down our time together. A passion for God's glory will move us to share God's gospel. A passion for God's glory will move us to share God's gospel. Hey, look at me for a moment. Paul was just passing through Athens. That wasn't a ministry destination. He was just waiting for his team to catch up to him, right? But listen to me. His spirit was provoked. He could not be silent. Do you care about the glory of God? 